talking about Daniel 3, and you can't really read Daniel 3 without focusing on the subject of trials and temptations. Any of you ever gone through a trial or temptation before? Any of you going through it right now? We're going to talk about some things tonight that are going to bring great encouragement to you. Let me give you a little context about Daniel 3 before we hop into it so you understand what's going on. Some of you might be here tonight new, and the last thing I'd want to do is just start throwing random Hebrew names out and have you just kind of walk away going, what is he talking about? But God had a special people that he chose, and they were the Jews. And, and he loved the Jews. He, he, he promised Abraham that his descendants and his lineage would be blessed and, and immeasurable and innumerable on the earth, that they would be a blessing, and through him would come a savior. And so he promised that, man, no matter what, I will never leave you and forsake you. He promised that to Joshua, leading the people into the promised land. And we serve a faithful God, and we learn about God's faithfulness and character through the Jews, because he called these people his own special people. The apple of his eye is treasure. And so in the, in the word we learn, that this group of people was called by God, delivered out of bondage, out of, out of Egypt, and, and sent into the desert, which, which should have been a very short travel to the promised land, became a 40-year journey because the people complained and grumbled, and it didn't happen their way right away. And, and so they're, they're, they had to kind of go through, and, and many of them who started the journey didn't even finish the journey, including their leader, Moses, who led them out. And so, but we see God's faithfulness time and time again. The people make a mistake. There's, there's consequences, but God's always there to restore and redeem. And so that that's the context. There were 12, these people were divided into 12 tribes. They were the sons of Jacob. Jacob was later called Israel. So when you hear about Israel, you hear about, you're talking about God's people when you hear about Israel. And so there were 12 tribes that God divided these people into and different tribes had different functions and different geographic locations. But what happens is just like human propensity, we, we just tend to drift away. How many of you know you got saved, got excited? And then you just kind of began to maybe drift off course a little bit. I know I had a period like that where I wasn't going to church anymore because how many of you know you got to get a job, right? And if the boss man says you got to work on Sunday, then you just work on Sunday and then you don't go to church. And I'm not saying this is a good idea, by the way, but I'm saying this is what I was thinking at the time. And as I look back, it was the darkest season of my life because without being in the word, without being in community of believers, then there was little accountability anymore. There wasn't a measure. And so I began to do things that I never would have done before in community, began to to do, and it just became a really rough time in my life. So that's what happens with human beings. If they don't stay connected to the source, they begin to drift. And so about 600 years before Jesus came on the earth, the, the Israel, God's people, were finally taken captive by Babylon, by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian um, armies. And they came and took them, and they killed some. They stole, pillaged, took the things out of the temple that were sacred. Some of the people they deported to Babylon. Some of the people they killed. Some of the people stayed there and were in captivity as slaves. God had warned his people for a long time that this was going to happen because the, at the heart of the problem was that God's people created idols. Idolatry is anytime you make anything more important than God, that's an idol. And, and God hates idolatry because when he's not number one in your life, he's not able to be who he has promised to be in your life because we have to participate in that covenant. And so about 600 years before Jesus came, uh, finally the things that the prophets had, had warned came to pass. I just got done reading Ezekiel. And all through Ezekiel, God's like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to punish you, but I'm going to do it to bring you back to me. And if you would just repent, it wouldn't have to happen, but you won't repent. And you keep choosing false idols and you keep intermarrying between different religions. And, <clears throat> and so he finally had to allow 
this King Nebuchadnezzar to come and be a part of his ultimate restoration of God's people. But sometimes it's got to get a little worse before it gets better, doesn't it? And so in 600 BC, um, this is what, exactly what happened. And the story of Daniel, in Daniel 3, right before Daniel, in Daniel 2, we learn about um, Daniel and we learn about um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are four people who were basically deported from their homes. They were taken and they were put into this culture and they were seen as, as, as gifted young men. Nebuchadnezzar, much like Hitler, when you think about Hitler and Hitler's youth, right? He knew that if he wanted to change a culture or if he wanted to strip Israel of their God-centered culture, he would have to take the, influ- the young upcoming influencers, people who were healthy and strong and gifted and smart and people who had influence, and he took them from their homes and he put them on a three-year training program to be in the royal service of the king. And so he literally re-indoctrinated them about, their own, about the different culture, literally changed their diet, changed their names. Their names weren't actually Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had other names, but those were the names given to them in captivity. And, and, and some miracle, and we'll talk a little bit about this in a minute, but by some miracle of God, these people just, they just went along with the plan. They trusted and they had confidence in God and God was able to work through their situation as you're about to see as we read. So we're going to read through Daniel 3. It's 30 verses. When I was young, I got so bored when they would just read verse after recent church. But I'm telling you, when you hear this story, and when we're about to apply our lives to this story, and I think it's going to be great, refreshing, and encouragement to you. So if you're in Daniel 3, again, we're in the New Living Translation, but you can follow along in whatever you have. NLT is up here on the screens. Let's start with verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall. Okay, 90 feet tall, folks. Think about that. That's like over nine stories, right? To see a nine-story building, you have to like go downtown. That, that's, so a 90-foot-tall gold statue, nine feet wide, set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. I'm going to skip two and three. Go to verse four. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This gives you a picture of how arrogant this guy was. Because in Daniel 2, the reason he, Daniel had become into prominence along with his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is because Daniel was able to interpret a dream that none of the sorcerers, none of the magicians, none of the seers could, could interpret. It was, a, it was a dream that terrified King Nebuchadnezzar. It kept him up. He couldn't solve it. He couldn't figure out what it was. And it was a dream of this ginormous statue. And the statue was made of different parts. Like one part was gold and one part was silver and one part was bronze. And he didn't understand what it meant. And Daniel, after, you know, to make a long story short, Daniel prays to God. God gives him the inter- doesn't just give him the interpretation of the dream, but actually gives him the dream. Because Nebuchadnezzar didn't actually tell anyone what the dream was. He just wanted someone to come and tell him what the dream was and then tell what it meant. How about that for a tall order, right? Basically reading his mind, as we, would, as we would say. And so Daniel prayed, and God gave him the dream, and he was able to tell it accurately to Nebuchadnezzar and then explain what it was. And the dream was about how, although right now, you know, you look like you, you are, there's no one like you, Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, you are, you are a force to be reckoned with, but your time is coming short. And there will be other kingdoms. And there will be other kingdoms that may be less prestigious, but they're going to have more military might. And they're going to consume you, and you're not going to. He was the head of gold in the statue, but they said not long because there's other kingdoms that are going to come. How audacious and arrogant that in the very next chapter of the book, the guy erects a 90-foot statue and tells everyone to worship it. I mean, did he completely miss the point or what? And so, and so this is what happens in, in, in this place. And so he basically says, all of the people, I don't care who you are, many of them were, were people who had come, who had been uh, deported and, and 
brought in as slaves from, from um, Israel. And so he's saying, listen, you guys are going to have to worship this thing. And, and Nebuchadnezzar was really enjoying a moment where he felt like he was just on top of his game. What he didn't realize was God was using him to reach the people of Israel. He thought he was just who he was because he was amazing. He didn't realize God had given him the ability to be in the position, but it was going to be short-lived because his heart was not for God. And so going on to verse 8, some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. So they're tattletaling on the Jews, right? And it says, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a, issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harps, the pipes, and other musical instruments. And that decree also states that those who refuse to obey, here's the condition, must be thrown into a blazing furnace. Everybody say, ouch. Since we're into sound effects in this church, right? <laughs> now, there's, a, there's some real irony here, not to be facetious or funny, but there's some real irony here. The very reason the people of God are in captivity is because of idolatry. And now what's happening is they're being put in a position where they're already in captivity because of idolatry. But now this guy, this evil king is saying, you're going to continue on and go to a whole nother level, whole nother level, and, and, and a whole other level and, and commit more adultery. And so they're kind of trapped between this rock and a hard place. Like you either co- continue to commit adultery, 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 idolatry, in which case things are going to continue to get worse and you walk into more captivity, or you're going to be dead, right? So that's a pretty tough decision. How many of you have been in situations like that? It'd almost be like in some ways if someone said, do you want life in prison or do you want to die? You got two options, like great options, right? And so, you know, people might choose different things based on where they're coming from. And so that was the kind of position that they were in. So so the Jews, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, said, no, no, no way, no part of it, not bound to the king. They, they had learned their lesson about idolatry. And the thing about idolatry, and we're going to talk about this, because we're talking about temptations and trials tonight, but in the center of that is always this temptation towards idolatry. It's a, we have a propensity to it as human beings. You might think, well, I don't have any idols. I don't have any weird carvings on my shell. It's not about that. It's about anything that we would do to take more precedence over God, right? It says a servant can't be uh, a servant to two masters. You have to have one master. And so if things are more important to you than God, then that becomes your master. And the end result of idolatry is always captivity, it's, it was for, the, for these people of God, it was captivity. It's in our lives when our hearts become locked up because of things or people or things that we allow to be more important than God. And so we're going to address that a little bit tonight. So going on in verse 12, it says, There are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. Now these guys had already come into great influence with the king because they were learned and because they were discerning and because they, um, God had done something on the, on the inside of them and caused them to be able to thrive and survive in this new setting. Oh, we lost our screen, didn't we? It caused them to uh, thrive in this new setting, right? Because think about it. I mean, if someone pulled you from your home, took you to a foreign land, and caused you to start and wanted to re-indoctrinate you to a different culture, and then said, I want you to serve with everything you have, and I want you to learn all these things and be open to all these things and change everything about you, how excited would you be, right? But for some reason, they kept on persevering, and we'll figure out that in a second. And so they trusted God through this, and what happened was God caused them to have influence with the king. And when God's people are willing to go through tight places in order for God's glory to be seen and and in order for them to have positions of influence, what we find out is is many times those positions of influence is exactly how God uses us to change the world. You say, I want to change the world. Well, great. Then be in a position where God's going to allow you to be 
to have influence. Sometimes that happens in the way that we picture, like everyone just applauds for you and esteems you, and sometimes it happens because you literally have to go what feels like hell, but when you come out on the other side, people look at you and say, I don't know how you ever endured. I don't know how you made that, and, and thus you have influence. So they trusted God enough to keep moving forward regardless of the pain of the situation that they were in. Go to verse 12, the second half of verse 12. They pay no attention to your majesty. Again, this, these are the, uh, the, this is the, the tattletale talking to Nebuchadnezzar. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods, and they do not worship the gold statue you have set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage in order that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought to him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Now, he knew them, right? He had already given them positions of influence. So he knew them, and they were standing before the, probably the most powerful man in all of the world at the time. I mean, could you imagine standing face-to-face with the most powerful leader all the time, and this man is enraged, asking you, why in the world are you resisting me? Why are you being insubordinate? That was the kind of pressure they were up against. Is it true that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? And then it goes on to verse 15. It says, I will give you one more chance. Because of the influence that they had, they weren't immediately killed. He said, I'm going to give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made. And when you hear the sound of the musical instruments, but if you refuse you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then, and check this out, what God will be able to rescue you from my power? See, at the heart of all, at the heart of every trial and temptation is that voice. You know that voice? That voice that says, God's not going to come through this time. That voice that says, you are going to fail and they're all going to laugh at you and you're going to be alone and it's going to hurt and the scars are going to be with you forever and the consequences are going to... I mean, have you ever heard that voice before? It's that same voice that was in the Garden of Eden from the snake that said, did God really say, don't eat from that tree? That was the beginning of all our problems, folks. That, that, that moment in the garden. And there was a voice that said, did, there is a voice, there's an evil, godless voice that we will hear our entire lives that will constantly try to convince us that God is not who he, said he's, who he is and he's not gonna do what he said he's gonna do. And we have to learn as believers, part of becoming mature is to recognize that voice and just say, listen, I know that voice. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna submit to that voice anymore. All of us have probably submitted to that voice many times in our past, but you get to a point in your maturity and your walk where you say, no, not anymore. I know that that's nothing more than a voice trying to discredit God. But if we don't have God, we have nothing. And so all of our hope rests on him. So he gives them one more chance and they say, nope. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego reply, check this faith out. This is just mind-blowing to me. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves against you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. How, I don't know about you, but as I read this, like with fresh ears and fresh eyes, I'm like, I've been serving God for a little while, but I don't know that I would make the right decision. I mean, do you ever wonder that? Like, oh, I just don't, I would love to believe I would. I would love to think that I would be as bold as they were, but I've never been in that kind of situation before. I have not been in that kind of pressing circumstance before where it was that black and white about choosing God or choosing self. And so the question I think that we all are asking is, what does it take to be, to have this kind of boldness in our lives. You know, even Peter, I think about Peter. Peter walked with Jesus. Peter knew Jesus and he still denied him three times. So what hope is there for a guy like this guy right here that I'm going to make the right decision in this kind of pressure, you know? And the answer is this, by standing firm in the grace of God. The reason that they were able to be bold like that is because they chose to stand firm. But when they chose to stand firm, they found a grace 
that became available to them to walk and endure and to believe and hope and to literally go into the fire. But I don't want to get ahead of myself, so let's go on. Let's go on to 19. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. Have you ever been in front of someone distorted by rage before? He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. And then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up, threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers, they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. Again, do I have what it takes to stand up to that kind of pressure? I mean, really, you ever ask yourself that? Do I have a, how were they able to do this? You know, we read in Revelation 12, 11, we read about in, in the end times and the kind of evil that will be unleashed in this earth, right? From a godless culture and from, and, and from a God who allows this earth to go through incredible pain and groaning as he prepares to come back triumphantly and make all things new. But we know about these times that will be so awful. And he says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and by not loving their lives even unto death. The blood of the lamb talks about the covenant. How you, the question is, how do you stand with this kind of boldness? How do you stand firm in this kind of boldness? Well, one, you draw deep on the covenant that you have. If you're in Christ, you and I, we have a covenant that God is con- continuing to do what he said he's done to his very, in the very beginning with his people. I will be your God and you will be my people. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'll help you. I will love you. I'll honor you. I'll protect you. I'll bless you abundantly. That's the covenant we have. So question, how do you stand firm in the face of this kind of opposition? Well, one, by, by, the, by the blood of the lamb, by, by pressing into the covenant. By two, by the word of your testimony. They began to speak. They began to speak of everything that God has done. They began to speak of where their allegiance was. They began to honor God with what they said. And most importantly, they didn't love their lives even to the death. Did you hear them and what they said? They said, even if God doesn't come through, because I think it's really easy for us to stand for him if we just know without a shadow of doubt he's going to come through. But if we knew that there's a slight possibility that he might not do it the way, how many of you believed for things and they didn't happen the way you thought they were going to happen? And maybe they still are unresolved and we just know that God's still working or they happen differently and maybe even better. But they didn't even love their lives unto the death. There was such an honor for God that they were willing to even die. Because the reality is, is that even in the fire, if they died, they would have been dead within a minute and they would live forever in eternity with God. I think it's a whole lot better to die in one minute in a fire than to live forever in that kind of captivity that idolatry brings. Amen? So, so they exercised faith and obedience, and what it did was it made them fit for temptation and trials. When you talk about temptation and trials, the time to become obedient to God It's always a good time to start obeying God, but the best time to obey God when trials and temptations are coming is before the trials and temptations. Because what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had, and Daniel too for that matter, what they had was they had a long history of serving God and allowing God uh, to, to put them in places where they needed God. And every time that they persevered and hung in there, God would reveal himself and then their confidence in him would raise. See, I think many times we think that serving God is kind of like staying on Santa's nice list and off the naughty list. I think, it's, I think it's like this human, again, this human propensity to like say, when God tells me to do something, I have to do it to make him happy. And if he's happy with me, then everything will go okay. And if I'm on the naughty list, things aren't going to go okay. And while there's some partial truth to that thing, that is not what God is saying when he gives us his law and when he puts his law in our hearts. What he's saying is I'm giving you this law to help you be spiritually fit for what I'm calling you to do. 
If you, were com- if you knew that in a year you were going to run a, a, mar- a full marathon or a triathlon, well, you better start getting fit now. And the coach telling you what to do is not just trying to dominate you and put you into bondage. They're preparing you to be fit for the moment that's coming, right? And so to, to be fit for the trials and temptations that we're all going to face from time to time, the, the way to be fit spiritually is to begin following God. It's to not love your, your lives so much that you're not willing to do whatever God shows you to do. To get in his word every single day to begin to just get to know him more and more and more so that your confidence in him grows and grows and grows. So when you're in the face of a, of a leader full of distorted with rage, who's you know, c- condemning you to death, you have a confidence in the God that says, even if I perish, I am not going to forsake God. And these men had this kind of track record. And so by the grace of God, they were able to stand firm. Now, there's two dominant temptations of every kind of temptation I think we go to boils down to these two things. One, love of the world. We're tempted all the time by just the, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life, the Bible says. You know, it's, it's like you want that promotion at work, and so what do you do? Do you cut corners? Do you cheat someone out? Do you do something? Do you take credit for something? You know, because I got, I got to get promoted, and that's, that's the love, having too much love for the world. The Bible says we're in the world, but not of it. So when you follow God, we operate under a whole different plan, a whole different program. And so many of the temptations we face are simply just us dealing with the pressure, and it's idolatry. It's saying, do I love the world more than I love God? And the other one is fear of man. And so many of our temptations and trials, at the heart of them are, are idols, uh, like the fear of man. Well, if I don't do this thing, I know God doesn't want me to do it, but if I don't do it, they're going to mock me. If I don't do it, they're going to they're push me out. You know? uh, they're going to ostracize me. If I don't do it, I'm going to be alone. If I don't do it, I'm not going to have enough money. If I, if I do that, then uh, I'm going to be in a whole league where I have no idea what I'm doing and I might fail. That's the fear of man. It's an idol. And anytime we allow that kind of idolatry to influence the decisions we make, it always ends in the same place, captivity, always. And so we have to learn how to tell that voice, that fear, that voice that said, God's not really going to come through this time. He's not going to do it. We got to learn to tell that voice, literally shut up, sometimes out loud, shut up. I'm not listening to that voice anymore. I'm confident in God. I've seen him come through. I'm reflecting back on all the great things he's done. And here's the good news. The pressures of the trials and temptations that, that we face are a setup for the miraculous. They're a setup. Because as we begin to read in just a second, what, what we see is God is using this whole thing to do something amazing. Check out verse 24. Suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up the three men and throw them into the furnace? I mean, picture this now, because it's just one thing to read about. Picture this. A fire seven times hotter than normal. So I'm guessing this is a pretty big campfire. And so... It, this thing's raging. People are watching. They've thrown men. Could you imagine watching someone be thrown? I mean, this is, I can't even think about it, right? And so they're standing there watching this. I mean, literally, I got chills just thinking about it. Like, I wouldn't even, even want to experience that, right? And, they, and they're right here, and they throw these people in. And if you even have the gall to be able to watch, what they find is that the three men that they've thrown in there are not dying. They're walking around. And there's a fourth man that appears. And we know through our Christian heritage and history that, you know, we believe this fourth man to be literally a manifestation of God. You could say Jesus was right there. And there's something that we can apply our lives to that says in the worst trial and temptation that you and I go through, Jesus is there. He's not just everywhere. He's everywhere, but he's also here. And in my hardest days and the hardest things that I have to face, there's nothing that brings peace and such confidence in my heart. It's when I just recalibrate and remember Everywhere I go today, God's with me. And what if he desires even more than I do that I prosper? 
Like sometimes our prayers just become like trying to convince God to get on our page. But, but the desires that God's put in your heart, maybe he wants to accomplish them even more than we want to see them accomplished. And so we have this confidence of knowing that the, the fourth man in the fire, you know, of our trials and temptations is Jesus. And so they're freaking out. Didn't we tie up three men and throw them in the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did. They replied, look. I don't think he said, look, Nebuchadnezzar said. He said, look, (laughs) I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Now, there's something really interesting, because you'll know this verse when I say it, but if I'm doing my math right, about 10 or 20 years later, the prophet Isaiah, or someone writing in the book of Isaiah, because some people think in the middle chapters 40 and on was a different author, but whoever wrote Isaiah uh, 43, 1 through 5, wrote this, and this was God's heart for the people through the voice of a prophet. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you, O Israel. This, I want these to be like the medicine. The, let this be like a healing salve when you're in the midst of your trials and temptations and the pressure and you're being, you're just right up against the wall to do things that maybe God doesn't want you to do, but you don't know how else it could be. And this is what God's saying. Listen to the Lord who created you, right? O Israel, the one, who formed, the one who formed you says, do not be afraid for I have ransomed you. I've called you by name. You're mine, When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. And when you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as ransom for your freedom. I gave Ethiopia and Saba in your place. Others were given in exchange for you. I traded their lives for yours. And check this out, because you are precious to me. That's what God says to you. In the midst of your trial and temptation or in the midst of the one that you may be about to walk into, not to bring a bad report, but it's going to happen. We're all going to go through trials and temptations. And this is what the voice of the fourth man who walks with you says. You are precious to me. You are honored and I love you. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I don't know that there's a better phrase in the Bible than the phrase, I will be with you. Because every time you read, and I did a message on this years ago, and I made a long list, and every time in the Bible where it said, I will be with you, something miraculous happened. The fourth man in your fire says, I will be with you. And so if you go to verse 26, back to, uh, back to our text, Daniel 3, go to verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Apparently he's having a heart change here. Uh, apparently this is messed up his world a little bit. Servants of the most high God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire and the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors, crowd, all these people, right? Checking this out, people, godless people, right? And don't know God, crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree today. If any people, whatever their race, nation, or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb, nice, and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. And then he says this, there is no other god who can rescue like this. This is a godless man who at the beginning of this chapter had erected a 90 foot by nine feet wide statue of himself, presumably, for the people to worship in their honor of him. And in 30 verses later, there is no other God who can rescue like this. Because three men 
were willing to go through the fires. Three, million were, three men were willing to stand firm, lay hold of the grace that comes by having confidence in God. And God was able to not use, not use it just to preserve. Sometimes our thinking is so narrow. God, if you can just help me pay this bill, if you'll just help me through this test, if you'll just help me with this person, if you'll just heal this relationship and bring that person back. And it's like, it's just, we're asking because for us, but so many times God's story is so much bigger than what he's doing. And in this case, the story, it wasn't just about preserving the lives of three men, but it was about literally causing them to have the kind of influence that would cause a godless king to say, there is no other God that could rescue like this. And so the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. Do you think they even had a clue that what they were fighting for was not their own lives and not the honor of God, but also for the preservation of their religion to the generations. Because Nebuchadnezzar was in the process of wiping out everything about the Jewish culture. He wanted to completely separate them from their culture, from their lineage, from their God, from their laws and customs. And in one bold move for generations, the, the knowledge of God and the covenant of God were preserved. And so... In trials, and just as you know, we conclude tonight, in trials and temptations, there's three things that are always at stake. And one is God's glory. God is just interested. Beyond you and I, beyond our little stories, God's big story is all about glory. When he is glorified, things happen. The kingdom of God is established on earth as it is in heaven when God's glory. God is for first and foremost uh, concerned about his glory, right? So when we're going through trials and temptations, one of the things that are at stake are God's glory. And that's why we can have confidence because God is using the things that we go through to ultimately bring glory to him. And the second thing is to God's witness to the world. Just like in this story, man, God was using this story to bring a witness to the entire world through their faith in who he was and through his power to deliver them now scores of people, and, and no doubt generations of people now, came to know God through this. And the third thing is what he wants to do in our lives, preparation. The trials and temptations are not just something to run away from. Trials and temptations are like, are like the, the proving grounds of what we believe. That's why trials and temptations are so important to understand and press through because, honestly, what we believe isn't worth anything until it's pressured by trials and temptations. If you just believe God because he's going to make your life all rosy and then that's all that happens, what did you really, I mean, what was it really about? But, but our faith is most vibrant, it's most outward when we're going through trials and tribulations, you know? That's the time where our faith is proven. Now, so, so God's glory, God's witness to the world through us and our preparation for his calling. Again, following God causes us to be spiritually fit for what he wants to do. So tonight, I realize some of you may be in trials and temptations. Maybe you're in a trial where it just feels like the walls are closing in. Maybe you're being tempted right now with something that you know is not God, but you just don't know how else it's going to work out if you don't take that thing. Let me give you a couple of things to do. Okay, the first is what it says in James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He didn't just say draw near to me like you should do this, but he says draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Whether you've been serving God for years and years and years or whether you just heard about him for the first time when you walked into this place tonight, the Bible says there's a promise that says if you'll draw near to God with whatever you know to do, with you, however you do it, draw near to him and he'll begin to reveal himself to you. And that's the beginning of the confidence that it takes to stand firm and lay hold of the grace that will cause us to endure and not just survive, but thrive. But thrive, just like these men did. So one, draw near to God, and two, resolve to stand firm.
It's much better right now to resolve to stand firm when trial and temptation comes and not leave that decision until the moment of trial and temptation. Because in that moment, there's a lot of factors going on. There's a lot of emotions going on. There can be that voice of fear is loudest in those moments. But if we all decided right now as the family of God, I resolve to resist that voice of fear and I resolve tonight to follow after God no matter what he shows me to do. I resolve when I feel the, pre- the encroaching in that temptation, I'm gonna resolve to draw near to God. I'm gonna get my word. I'm gonna get back in the community with believers. I'm gonna be in the right place at the right time where I'm supposed to be. I'm gonna stop being in places where I shouldn't be and begin to draw. The confidence comes. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 10. You don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul is encouraging you in this. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He'll not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. So my friends, flee the worship of idols. And that's so interesting. Flee the world. This is what we're talking about. What are those idols for us? Love of the world and fear of man. Flee it. When it comes, listen, it's going to come, but don't worry. God will not allow you to be tempted more than you can endure. Flee from idols. Just immediately, the Bible in James 4, 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. That's what we do. So tonight, I want you to stand up on your feet. And we're going to pray in just a second. We're going to pray for you if you're going through trials and temptation. But be encouraged tonight before we pray that God's present. Be encouraged that God's turning your trials into gold, like it says. Be, be, be encouraged tonight that the things you're going through are not because God is busy helping somebody else. God is taking you through a process that's going to cause him to have glory. It's going to cause other people to know about him. And it's going to cause you to become more mature in your faith. Because the more mature we come, then the more spiritually fit we become for what God wants to do. What if, you, what if all of a sudden we could just see by the eyes of faith all of the amazing things that God wants to do with each one of us uniquely? Because each one of us, there's unique things he wants to do. What if we could see what it was, but then what if we stuck back, stood back and just went, I'm not even close to ready for that. I don't nearly have the faith that it takes to endure that kind of pressure. Okay, that's fair. So this is what we do. We resolve to start drawing near to God. We resolve to allow him to draw near to us. We resolve to start following after him in the little things, in the minute by minute little things, so that as we grow in maturity and as we grow in confidence of who he is, then we're, when we're in those fiery furnace type of situations, our confidence in him causes us to not give up, but it causes us to stand firm and to, and to recall his goodness and to go after him and to not give up and not just survive, but thrive through that thing. And then people come to know him and we become more mature and our faith is built up. That's the kind of living that he wants to do. That's what he, how he wants to use trial and temptations in our life. But I want to pray really quickly. And I know we prayed earlier and, and there was no one, I don't think, that, that, that didn't already know Jesus. But I want to pray again because sometimes things stir on the inside of you or maybe you were timid to raise your hand before. But this is what Nebuchadnezzar said. It was so important. He said this, there is no other God who can rescue like this. And I think for a long time, personally, I just thought that when it says that, you know, you can only get to heaven because of Jesus, we know that Jesus is the only way to heaven. The Bible is very clear about this. No matter what popular culture tries to tell you, there are not many roads to heaven. There is one road to heaven, and there is a Savior who is the only one. See, I used to think it was like, like, I better believe him right, or he's not going to let me into heaven. But what the reality was is no one else can help me into heaven. There's nobody else who's going to rescue you. That's the truth of the gospel. It's not that God's being really fickle with you. It's that there's nobody else who can pay for your sin and erase the separation that we had with God because of our sin. There's nobody else who's going to do it. 
He's the only person who can do it. He's the only one that died on a cross and rose again. He's the only one that God allowed his death to be the substitution for our punishment and penalty. He's the only one. He's the only one that's going to come for you. So we're not talking semantics and we're not talking about being politically correct. We're talking about pressing in and laying hold of the gift from the only person that ever lives who died and rose, who has made it possible for us to live like we've never sinned and to enjoy eternity with God forever. And not just eternity with God forever, but enjoying a fruitful life of being in covenant with him now. That's what's at stake. So with every eye closed and bowed head, if there's anybody here tonight that's not yet laid a hold of that free gift of grace, meaning that I know about Jesus, but I don't know him. Maybe, here's the test. Maybe if you knew that you were going to die and you wouldn't necessarily have the confidence that you're going to go to heaven. Maybe you're one of these people that says, well, I've tried to be a good person, but I don't know that I've been good enough. Let me encourage you. It's not about being a good person at all. It's about laying hold of the free gift. Now, let me read this over you as we, as we go. Just let me read this. This is Peter. Peter suffered as well. And this is what he says in 1 Peter 4.19. So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you for he will never fail you. And one chapter later, he says this. In his kindness, God calls you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you. And he will place you on a firm foundation. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and to assure you that what you're experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this We hope this message encouraged you. Victor Christian Center is passionate about sharing the love, acceptance, and forgiveness of Jesus. Learn more about us at victorylafayette.org. If you don't know Jesus or maybe you've gotten distracted and stopped following him, I'd like to pray for you right now. The most important decision you'll ever make involves accepting the love of Jesus and His gift of new life. I'd invite you to make this prayer your own and take this opportunity to begin to follow Jesus. God, I ask you to reveal yourself to me. I want to know you. I ask you to forgive the sin in my life that has kept me from enjoying a relationship with you. Give me a fresh start by changing my life and helping me to follow you from this point forward. I accept your love through Jesus, and I commit to trust your plan for my life. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. If you've prayed this prayer for the first time, please get in touch with us and let us know. To learn more about Victory or to contact us, visit us online at victorylafayette.org.